Welcome back to another edition of the ASAP Equal Podcast. I'm your host, as always, Dr. Jason Woods. Today, we have an absolute treat for you, Dr. Latha Ganti, who is Vice Chair for Research and Academic Affairs at University of Central Florida College of Medicine. She holds positions both within the departments of emergency medicine and neurology and has training specifically in vascular neurology. She is going to talk to us about how to manage blood pressure in the setting of intracranial hemorrhage, what the target should be and what medications are out there, as well as a review of the data that does exist. You're not going to hear me much this episode because Dr. Ganti does such a great job of moving through this subject without really needing any prompting. So I'm going to get out of the way and let Dr. Ganti take it away. I am going to be talking about blood pressure management in intracranial hemorrhage. And unlike in acute ischemic stroke, where we have a nice U-shaped curve for blood pressure and outcome, the outcome between blood pressure and intracranial hemorrhage is not so straightforward. So intuitively, we would think that having high blood pressure would seem to worsen the force behind the bleeding, so then that you would get a larger hematoma or more bleeding. But then we also know that many patients with hypertension kind of live at these high blood pressures. So maybe they need that pressure for perfusion. So then you wonder, okay, well then at these high blood pressures and they're bleeding, is the autoregulation maintained? And then intuitively as an ER doc, I want to do something when I see a problem, right? But if I lower the blood pressure, will I cause ischemia around the hematoma? Will I make the hematoma any better? Am I going to make the patient better? Because ultimately that's what matters. So these are all questions that we have in terms of what is the role of blood pressure in intracranial hemorrhage and what we can do about it. So just jumping right into the first question, will I cause perihematomal ischemia? There's a couple of studies that looked at this, and it's actually the core studies that probably will answer most of our questions. The ICH-ADAPT study was a two-part study. They had a randomized control trial that was 75 patients, and then an observational sub-study of 20 patients. So what they did in the randomized control trial is they took patients with spontaneous intracranial hemorrhage less than 24 hours after onset, and then they randomized them into either a target group of systolic blood pressure less than 150 mmHg or less than 180 mmHg. They then did CT perfusion in both groups, imaging two hours post-randomization. And then what they found is that the rapid blood pressure lowering after a moderate volume of ICH does not reduce perihematoma cerebral blood flow, meaning it does not cause ischemia. So that's reassuring. Then they took a sub-study of the patients, 20 of them, and they looked at CT perfusion within 72 hours of the ICH before and after blood pressure treatment. And they found that the cerebral blood flow remained stable after the acute blood pressure reduction, suggesting that there is some preservation of cerebral autoregulation. Again, reassuring. The Australian study, which had 21 patients in it, They looked at both MRI and CT images. So they did an MRI perfusion and diffusion. And what they did is they co-registered the MRI and CT images to ensure that the perfusion and diffusion changes were outside of the hematoma. They then measured the edema volumes on T2-weighted images and found that the apparent diffusion coefficient values of the edematous regions demonstrated that there was no oligemia that occurs. So when you look at hematomas and you look at them before and after blood pressure management, there is a rim and it looks like it's hypoattenuated compared to the hematoma. And so the concern is always, oh my God, is that ischemia? But what they saw is that first of all, the cerebral blood flow is not impaired. And second of all, that rim of low attenuation actually appears to be caused by extravasated plasma and not associated with MRI markers of ischemia. So we should be safe there. 
Let's move to hematoma expansion. So we've answered the question about, is there ischemia around the hematoma? Next is, what about hematoma expansion? If I lower the blood pressure, is the hematoma going to get worse? So what do we know about hematomas, right? We know that the risk of hematoma expansion is highest, earliest in the ICH course. So if I bleed right now, time T0, from now until the next couple of hours, that is going to be the worst time for me. If I kind of make it past the first couple of hours, the risk of my ICH expanding is going to be less. We also know that patients with hematoma expansion do worse. A 10% expansion is roughly equal to a 5% increase in mortality and a 15% increase in Rankin scores 3 to 6. What else do we know? We know that hematoma expansion can be predicted by the spot sign. So what's the spot sign? Spot sign is seen on CT angio, and it's basically a unifocal or multifocal contrast enhancement within the primary intracranial hemorrhage. It's visible on the CTA source images and it is discontinuous from the adjacent or normal or abnormal blood vessels. So you should not see it on a non-contrast CT. And the spot sign corresponds to a site of active dynamic hemorrhage. It's present in about a third of patients who are scanned with CTA within six hours of symptom onset. Baseline intracranial volume, and then did they have a CT angiography spot sign? Yes, no. The reason you get a point for unavailable is because if you did not get a CT angio for your ICH, then you can't comment on it. But either way, you can calculate this hematoma expansion score, and this correlates to whether the hematoma will expand and also to in-hospital mortality. So you have score 0 to 9. You can kind of condense these numbers. So a score of 0 gives you approximately a 6% risk of expansion. A score from 1 to 3 gives you approximately a 10% risk of expansion. And anything 4 and above is about 32% risk of expansion. So then if I lower the blood pressure acutely, will I reduce this hematoma expansion? And what the ICH ADAPT investigators found is that there is no difference in hematoma expansion or clinical outcome. What about, will I improve functional outcome or reduce death? So the INTERACT-2 trial looked at 2,839 patients, again, ICH within six hours, and they randomized them to similar targets, less than 140 SBP or 180 SBP. You could use any medication to decrease the blood pressure, and they excluded certain categories of patients. So they excluded structural cerebral causes for ICH. They excluded patients who had a GCS of five or less. They excluded patients with a massive hematoma or poor prognosis. And then all patients who already had planned early surgery to evacuate hematoma were excluded. The primary outcome here was death or bad Rankin, and a bad Rankin was defined as three to six. Why three? Three is the number at which you are no longer able to live independently. So zero, one, two, you're able to live independently. Three and above, you can't. So that's a huge difference. And basically what they found is that intensive lowering of blood pressure did not result in a significant reduction in the rate of the primary outcome of death or severe disability. The follow-up, attached to trial, this was 1,000 patients, ICH even earlier within four and a half hours instead of six hours. And they also randomized patients to SBP between 110 and 139, so, you know, 140 and less. Or, and then the other group was 140 to 179. In the United States, the blood pressure medications that could be used were nicotine and then labetalol. And then outside of the United States, it was diltiazem and urepidol. The analysis was adjusted for age, their initial GCS, and whether or not they had intraventricular hemorrhage, because we know that intraventricular hemorrhage results in worse prognosis. They also excluded patients with GCS less than five, and here they defined large hematoma. They actually put a number on it, and they said greater than 60 cc's. Their primary outcome was a little bit more generous. They said modified rank in four to six at three months after randomization. 
But actually, they ended up stopping the enrollment early because of futility after the pre-specified second interim analysis. So basically what they found is they didn't have to go all the way till the end of the trial because even by the second interim analysis, they saw that aggressive lowering to less than 140 did not improve functional outcome or reduce death. And furthermore, they found that there was renal adverse event within seven days, a worse rate, significantly higher in the intensive treatment group than in the standard treatment group. And this is why it was abandoned early. So that was a lot. I think we answered a couple of questions. And then I had a couple of questions. What is the optimal blood pressure target in acute intracerebral hemorrhage? So the first choice is whatever they came in with, lower it by 25% to 185 over 95 milligrams of mercury, three systolic 120 to 140 milligrams of mercury, or 140 to 180 milligrams of mercury. All right, I've gone over all the relevant trials and the major trials that try to inform us about whether or not we should bring in blood pressure management and how should we should do it. What do the guidelines say? So these are the American Heart Association guidelines from 2015, and 2015 actually are the most recent guidelines. So unless they come out with something before these slides are published, you have the latest guidelines here. For ICH patients presenting within systolic blood pressure between 150 and 220 without any contraindication to acute BP management, the acute lowering to 140 is safe. So they say that. And then they say if you have ICH patients presenting with greater than 220, then it's reasonable to consider aggressive reduction of BP with the continuous intravenous agent and frequent blood pressure monitoring. So where do you go with that? Because I basically went over saying that it doesn't seem to impact functional outcome that much, and it doesn't seem to impact death that much. And there's all these studies that have tried to look at less than 180, less than 140, and I haven't really presented any convincing evidence of doing anything in particular. So then if you're the ER doc and you have a patient in the ED, what are you supposed to do with all this information? Basically, I think the middle of the road approach where you are targeting a systolic blood pressure of 140 to 160 is probably a reasonable target. So then the next question is, what drug should I use? The three drugs that are indicated as first line for blood pressure management in intracranial hemorrhage are labetalol, nicardipine, and clavidipine. There are lots and lots of other medications you can use. They are mostly off-label. So I guess you can use them, but they are not the preferred agents. And I'll go over why some of these agents are not the best. Clearly, in the management of blood pressure in hypertensive emergency intracranial hemorrhage, you want to make sure you have an agent that acts quickly and doesn't last too long because you want to be able to titrate that blood pressure. So labetalol. Labetalol is a mixed alpha and beta adrenergic blocker. It does have a fast onset. That's why we like it. And it lasts about two to four hours. The IV bolus dose is 20 milligrams initially, followed by 20 to 80 every 10 minutes to a total dose of 300 milligrams. Oftentimes, people have trouble remembering doses, so sometimes we just say 10 every 10 minutes so that you have a way to remember that easily. The infusion dose is 0.5 to 2 milligrams per minute. Caution with labetalol. Important to avoid it in patients who have severe asthma, COPD, heart failure, bradycardia, and second or third degree block. So real quick, before you put that labetalol order in, just make sure that you glance at the EKG so you don't notice any major bradycardia or heart block and ask them, do you have CHF, do you have COPD asthma, so that you can choose an alternative drug if they have any of these things. Nicardipine, that's the next drug. Nicardipine is a calcium channel antagonist 
and it has predominantly vasodilatory actions. It acts even faster than labetalol, just one to two minutes, and has a half-life of 40 minutes. So faster onset of action and a half-life that is shorter. The infusion dose is 0.5 to 1 micrograms per kg per minute, titrated to a maximum dose of 3 micrograms per kg per minute. Once you've maxed out on it, then you may need to switch to labetalol, as they did in one of the studies we just talked about. The newest drug indicated for blood pressure management and intracranial hemorrhage is clavidipine. Not available everywhere, but uh, it's a dihydropyridine calcium channel blocker. Its onset of action is also very fast at one to four minutes. It lasts about five to 15 minutes, and it has an infusion rate of one milligram per hour up to 21 milligrams per hour. So pretty wide range there. It is contraindicated in a few categories of patients. Patients who have severe aortic stenosis because it increases the risk of severe hypotension. It is contraindicated in patients who have some disordered lipid metabolism, so some of the genetic diseases there. And the reason for that is because it's given in a lipid-laden emulsion. Or if the patient has a known allergy to soy or eggs. And, you know, I always ask about drug allergies, but I don't always ask about soy or eggs. So when I made the slide, I was thinking I got to make sure I ask that next time. And the reason, again, is because these are used to produce the emulsion. So you hope they're not allergic to it. So next question, which of the following drugs is not indicated for blood pressure management in acute intracerebral hemorrhage? I'm going to talk about a couple of the off-label drugs. And the reason for that is because they are actually used commonly in practice. And so I just wanted to highlight some of the reasons why they're not the most optimal drugs and also some of the caveats with these drugs. So esmolol is similar to labetalol in that it is a beta blocker, but it's cardioselective beta-1 receptor blocker. It is super fast. The onset is 60 seconds, and it's very easily titratable, which is why a lot of emergency medicine docs like it. One caveat with this drug is do not discontinue the drug suddenly. What you want to do with it is because it's so easily titratable is you titrate the esmolol down, titrate whatever new agent you're starting up slowly, and then discontinue it. It's great because you don't need any dose adjustment for renal or hepatic impairment, but it is contraindicated in patients with sinus bradycardia, sick sinus syndrome, AV heart block, heart failure, cardiogenic shock, pulmonary hypertension, and any history of hypersensitivity reactions to esmolol. Also, if somebody is already getting a calcium channel blocker, a lot of times we say don't also give a beta blocker because it can precipitate hypotension and bradycardia. This is kind of like, you know, stone heart when you're giving medications for atrial fibrillation. However, many times in intracranial hemorrhage, if you've maxed out on your nicardipine, you do switch to labetalol. So it's not a hard and fast rule, just something to keep in mind. Phenoldepam is an interesting drug because um, it's kind of unique. It has a unique mechanism of action. It's a dopamine D1 receptor agonist with minimal adrenergic effects. This medication results in decreased peripheral vascular resistance, and this is primarily happening in the renal capillary bed. So you get better renal blood flow, and it may actually be the only intravenous agent out there that improves renal perfusion. So a lot of our patients who have ICH may also have chronic kidney disease, so it might be a useful drug in these patients. We saw that in one of the trials that we went through that aggressively decreasing the blood pressure actually resulted in worse renal effects. So it's always important to keep in mind that when you're trying to bring down blood pressure, you want to make sure you are still perfusing all of your organs. One of the downsides with this medication, though, is that its onset of action is 5 to 10 minutes. And 5 minutes, if you are standing at the bedside of a patient who has a very high blood pressure and they're having a hypertensive emergency is a very, very long time. I actually just did this yesterday on my shift. So I can tell you, you want something that acts faster than that. 
The duration of action is 30 to 60 minutes. The infusion dose is 0.1 micrograms per keg per minute IV, and you can titrate that up to a maximum of 1.6, so a very actually narrow range of therapeutic dose. Careful in patients with glaucoma and increased ICP. The next drug I want to talk about is hydralazine. I've noticed actually, at least in our practices, that more and more people seem to be using hydralazine, but the onset of action is 10 to 20 minutes. So it really makes it a suboptimal drug for hypertensive crises where you need fast onset of action. It also lasts four to six hours. So not something that you can just take out of the system quickly. The dose is a 10 to 20 milligram IV bolus. It functions as a direct arteriolar vasodilator. But the adverse effects is that it can result in a sudden drop in blood pressure, resulting in tachycardia, flushing, headache, they can have vomiting, and in patients who already have angina, it can result in worsening angina. So hydralazine is not optimal because of all these reasons. Thus, it is not a preferred agent in patients with underlying coronary disease or aortic dissection. And a lot of times, if you give hydralazine, you also have to add a beta blocker to minimize reflex sympathetic stimulation. So then why not just go with labetalol, right? And then the last medication that I want to talk about is enalaprilat. And this is a medication that inhibits angiotensin 1 to 2 conversion by competitively inhibiting angiotensin converting enzyme or ACE. The dose is 1.5 to 5 milligrams every six hours IV. The onset of action is 15 to 30 minutes. So it takes a long time for this to get on board and it lasts six to 12 hours. It's predominantly used in left ventricular failure. It's really too slow for most hypertensive emergencies and should be avoided in myocardial infarction, renal insufficiency, and pregnancy. So I think right there, that sort of is a summary of just one aspect of intracranial management. Of course, you have to think about their intracranial pressure and you have to think about their anticoagulation status and whether they're a surgical candidate. But when it comes to blood pressure, it's fairly simple. The few things you need to remember about blood pressure management and intracranial hemorrhages, keep it around 140 to 160, and your top three drugs are going to be labetalol, nicardipine, and clividipine. I think if you remember those things from this brief webinar, then you got it. I think the only clarification question I had is with labetalol, you mentioned a lot of contraindications that are relatively common in the emergency room, as well as a couple of problems with the medication. So why do you list it as one of your favorite medications over something like nicardipine? The main advantage of labetalol is that you can give a bolus dose. When I'm at the freestandings, I always order the labetalol because I can get it as a bolus dose. So that's for me, that's the main advantage. Otherwise, when I'm at the main, I always get a cardiac drug. Well, thank you, Dr. Gonti, for your time. And listeners, thank you for your time. I've been your host, Dr. Jason Woods. You can find the rest of our ASAP Equal series at the Academic Life in Emergency Medicine website, www.aliem.com, or at the ASAP website, www.acep.org backslash equal. You can find me on Twitter at jwoodsmd or via email at jasonwoodsmd at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.